I invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we're looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. We are picking up where we left off, which is a little bit unusual for us. Um, when, when it comes to Easter and Christmas, we oftentimes take a break from the series we're working through to focus on the theme of the resurrection or the theme of Christ's birth, but I thought it would be perfectly appropriate to use this passage for our text this morning. As you're turning there, uh, I just was thinking and reflecting on this episode of, of Planet Earth 2 that we were watching recently as a family. And it contains this intense chase scene, one of the most intense chase scenes you've ever seen in nature, caught on camera, as these baby iguanas hatch on a beach and they open their eyes for the first time and they begin to look around and they see just this empty beach all around them. Rocks on their left, water on their right, except what's hidden in the rocks are gigantic snakes, literally hundreds of them. And, and, and as these iguanas look for anyone, anything, and they begin to move around, all of a sudden these snakes start to come. Now, the snakes don't have great vision. So if the iguana stays still, they, they can't be seen. But as soon as the iguana starts to move, the snake's going to pounce on them. And so this iguana is sitting there, and, and you're literally, your heart is pounding in your chest. I'm sweating just thinking about the scene. It, it, this iguana is just looking around, but, but still, and the snake keeps getting closer and closer, and you're like, well, maybe the snake does see him. Maybe he needs to start running. And just as the snake is about to touch the iguana, it darts. And it starts running, and, and right as it starts running, literally dozens of snakes are coming out of the rocks, bearing down on this iguana, which is faster. But when you have that many chasing you, the likelihood of survival is pretty slim. He does, though, get cat. He runs right into a, a cluster of snakes, about three of them all all piled together, and somehow miraculously escapes and keeps running, runs up the rocks, literally, no joke, there is a scene of a snake leaping midair, and this iguana, this is real life, folks, this iguana puts its foot on the mouth and kicks it off and keeps running. I mean, it's intense. And finally, makes it all the way up to the top of the rock and gets a, a good high five from his friend, like, you made it, congratulations. Now, for these iguanas, you're, you're sitting there thinking, where is this person's, who's, who's protecting this iguana, right? Only the fast and the brave survive. And I think oftentimes our lives can feel like that little naive hatchling looking around thinking there's a vast open space for him to wander around and explore, and he yet finds out that within moments his life is literally on the run. We have no idea what lurks inside the rocks just beyond our vision. However, our situation is even worse because we can't save ourselves. Right? We're not in the position where we can escape the threat that surrounds us on every side. 
not only that, we can't train ourselves. So even if we get ourselves all the way to safety, we have no ability to continue in that state for any length of time, right? To train ourselves up, to be pleasing to the Lord. We fall short of his glory and we're hopeless and helpless. We need to be saved and we need to be trained by grace, by the gift of salvation. And that's what this message is about. Grace radically transforms those who understand it and receive it. And it was written at a crucial time in the early church where many were unfamiliar with Scripture. Many of the doctrine, much of the doctrine that was being proclaimed by the apostles, which was the fulfillment of Christ, on, of the promises of the Old Testament, a lot of that was being contradicted by false teachers, whether they be from false religions or simply stirring up strife um, from the Jewish community. And so Paul here is instructing Titus to establish a godly leadership. That's where he began. Establish godly leadership in the church on the island of Crete. Go into every city where the church is and and establish leaders there who will then begin to proclaim sound doctrine, which will then result in sound living for the people. It has to begin there with the leadership preaching the truth of God's word to these people, and that in itself will be transforming. And so that's where we come to this passage. With that in mind, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we want to hear a word from you. We want to hear you speaking through your word to our hearts. And we know that as we open your word, you do speak powerfully. You can bring conviction, you can bring comfort, you can bring exactly what it is that we need. Each one of us can speak to us in unique ways. And so as we we dig into your word here, as we try to understand the situation that Paul was writing to Titus about and how it relates to us, Father, may you protect us. May you protect our minds from wandering, thinking about the things that are going to happen later today or things that have happened in the past, but to focus on your word, to focus on what you're doing in our hearts. Lord, may this truly be a worshipful experience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all zealousness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, this passage begins with the word for, and it reveals that this is the indicative that grounds the earlier imperatives. So as you look back in this chapter, chapter 
2, verses 1 through 10, you see this instruction on the character of the individuals, of older women, the characteristics that should define the younger women, the older men and the younger men, and even the bondservants. There's instruction there for how they are to live. And so, and then he goes into saying, for, the reason why you're to live that way is for this doctrine, for the doctrine that I'm about to describe in this next passage. Now, typically, Paul reverses that order. He has the indicative in the front half of his letter and is followed by the imperative. So who you are in Christ, he, he describes all of that. He defines that for you. And then he says, therefore, because of who you are in Christ, now you live in this way. In this passage, he reverses it. In fact, in one other area, one other letter, Paul writes, uh, he reverses the order. Ultimately, it it doesn't matter what order it comes in. The point is that the way we live is based upon the foundation of what we believe. We, We act the way we do because of what it is we understand about God or what it is we believe about ourselves, no matter what we say, right? It's what, it's, it's what we believe, what we think. We might say we believe God, but then live a different way. And so the first thing we see is this idea of being trained by grace, specifically for this present age. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, and that word appeared, he's talking about the first coming of Christ. This often is a passage that will be used for Christmas, Right, because it's talking about the appearing of Christ. But in fact, it's all of his first appearing, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, even his ascension would be included in this understanding. And so Christ has appeared to us for two reasons. First of all, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing, is, he, is he talking to all people? First of all, we need to understand what does he mean here by bringing salvation? Is he, is he talking about bringing an offer of salvation to all people? Is he talking about making it possible for all people to be saved? Well, that's not what it says. It says bringing salvation, that he's actually bringing the gift of salvation. He's saving people. And so really, there's only two ways to interpret that. Either he's talking about universalism, which is the idea that all people will be saved regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they live, or all here doesn't mean every individual. Right? And that might challenge your initial notion of, of this language, but it's very consistent to use the word all to refer to a group or to refer to um, categories. And in this case, He's just finished talking about groups of people in Titus chapter 2. The older, the younger. The, the men, the women. And even the bondservants. He's talked about groups of people. And now he's saying, this grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. No one is eliminated. Right? By their status, by their gender, by their age, everyone has access to the gospel of Christ. It refers to this breaking down of the separation between groups. Talking about unity, which we saw in the passage Ray read from Ezekiel 37. All right, so first of all, Christ appeared bringing salvation. But secondly, he says in verse 12, training us. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This language here of training has to do, in the, in the Old Testament, it was used of, of speaking of, of discipline or of being chastised. In the New Testament, it's mainly used for the idea of education, but they, the ideas go together, right? It's a, a disciplined training. It's a disciplined bringing up of your children. In fact, the, the word here is the root where, where we get the word pedagogue, right? Teaching, training up a child. And so training here involves, first of all, renouncing or denying old ways, ungodliness and worldly passions. It's a putting off of those things in order to put on this new way of life, a living that is self-controlled, a, live, a living that is upright before others and godly. You see there, it's a personal thing. It, it's a relationship thing, but it's also a, a, a vertical aspect there between, in our relationship with God. It changes everything we do, everything we think. Every kind of relationship we have is transformed by this gospel message. Grace changes everything. And that Paul recognized this training was under the hand of grace is revolutionary. Remember, at one point, Paul considered himself to be a blameless Pharisee in Philippians. Just a few pages back, writing to the church in Philippi, he says this in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Actually, back at first half of or second half of verse four, he says, "If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more." And if you think you're something special, consider how I lived. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a special tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how he considered himself before. He goes on to say, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of knowing Christ by faith. He considers all of that past resume that he had been building up to earn favor with God, he considers it trash, rubbish. It wasn't until he met Christ on the way to persecute the church out of his zeal that he recognized his desperate need for salvation, right? And so from that point on, he understood that he couldn't earn God's favor. He couldn't earn it through righteous deeds of his own, but he was already clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith from that moment. That's a radical transformation for him to undergo. And he does spend time in training and, under, and, and building upon this theology, but the same grace that saved us in the past also trains us to live in the present. The same grace that saved us in the past trains us how to live in the present. We must be saved and trained by the grace of Christ. Grace doesn't free us to live however we want to live, but begins transforming our desires so that we want to live differently. And not only does it transform our desires, but it transforms our ability 
so that we're enabled to live as he's called us to, which is, which is what was radical about grace. So worldly passions are replaced by a craving for something pure, something lovely. Fleeting pleasures of sin are replaced by a superior reward that's offered to us in grace. In fact, given to us by grace. And so Paul transitions from training by grace here for the present age to waiting with hope for a future age. Look at verse 13. Waiting. Again, he's still talking about the grace of God that has appeared. That grace brought salvation. It trains us. And now it teaches us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the personification of grace. And now we see he's the culmination of our hope. He's the end for which we live. John Stott put it like this, the grace that has appeared will reappear in glory. And so do you anticipate the future with hope? Are you filled with anxiety about what tomorrow holds? You were diagnosed with a terminal disease and given a short time to live. Would it fill you with fear today? Or would Jesus Christ be your only comfort in life and in death? Notice what he's saying here about this Jesus Christ. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the question is, is he talking about two people, two persons, God the Father and God the Son, or is he talking about one person, namely Jesus Christ who is God and Savior. Well, grammatically, there's a rule called the Granville Sharp Rule, and it's articulated like this. If there is an article, and you don't see the article, but in the Greek, it is the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The article only precedes God, theos, and then it is followed by God, so it's the God and Savior. Whenever that phrase, whenever you have a substantive or an article followed by a substantive, followed by a conjunction or chi in Greek, followed by another substantive, that's a rule that means it's talking about one person. It's not talking about two, and it's 100% accurate throughout the New Testament. Secondly, linguistics here, this idea, the, lang- the way language was used in the Greek and the way the New Testament authors wrote, they didn't talk about the appearing of God the Father. They talk about the appearing of the Son multiple times. And so this would be a very unique instance if it were talking about the appearing of God the Father. Thirdly, the context of this passage is, is Christ is the subject from beginning to renounce. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness uh, and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness. It's, It's about Jesus Christ before and after 
And then lastly, in the context of the original audience, they understood this phrase. They'd heard this phrase many times, our God and Savior. But it was referring to either pagan gods like Artemis in Ephesus, or it was referring to the imperial worship of Caesar. He was their God and Savior. So they, they were very familiar with this precise phrasing. And it always referred to one being, one person, one idol. And so the Cretans, right, the, the, the first recipients of this letter through Titus, those who lived on the island of Crete would have understood that Paul was confronting false religions here. He was saying, I know you, point, you look to this God or you look to this emperor as your God and Savior, but Jesus Christ and Christ alone is God and Savior. Once again, this is a paradigm shift for Paul right? to learn that the Messiah was God and to declare so so clearly in this passage. Paul affirms the deity of Christ as clear in this section, this passage, as anywhere else in the New Testament. It's undeniable what he believed here. You can look to the Gospel of John, the first chapter of John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word was, in verse 1, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, in verse 14, and the glory of the appearing is revealed by the God who is at the right hand of the Father. So you have God the Father, and then it's the God that's at his right hand who reveals the glory of the Godhead. And so this is Paul being consistent with the other New Testament authors that Jesus Christ is God. And he goes on to say that this Jesus Christ, this God-man, is the one who secures our future, right? The future is secured because of Christ's past act of redemption, which was the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Look at verse 14 here. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So first of all, Jesus gave himself. Secondly, Jesus redeemed us. He's now speaking there individually that we're redeemed by Christ. We're set free from the penalty and power of all past and present sins. And then thirdly, Jesus cleanses us corporately now. So we're individually redeemed and then cleansed as a people, right? A people for his own possession. And that's actually almost a direct quote from uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament of Ezekiel 37, 23, which was partly why I had Ray read that passage. In verse 23, we, say, we read, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's the theme that he's reflecting upon there, the, the gift of Christ that brings redemption and cleansing. Once again, the same grace that saved us in the past also trains us how to live with hope in the future. And so do you wait for the glory of Christ? Are you redeemed for his glorious appearing? 
The gift of Christ redeems us and purifies believers. And that's in preparation for his return. We're being prepared for that day where he appears in all his glory. And so the question is, do you believe that? Because I think when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to this truth, your zeal will be uncontainable. And that's where he says, we are a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Zealous for good works. I could have titled this sermon, Zealous for Good Works. And maybe that makes some of you cringe. And maybe you don't like to, to, to think about a duty or a responsibility of good works. But I would say if that makes you cringe, then you don't have genuine grace in mind because grace compels us. Grace transforms us. Compels us to be zealous in pleasing God. Not to be complacent. Not to, not to think that we can live all of our lives ignoring him and what he's done for us and the gifts he's given to us. No, when we understand this truly and fully, it does a work in our hearts to give us new desires. We're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Not only that, receiving this grace and hope fills us with a passion for speaking with authority about both ages. Okay, so we've seen waiting, uh, we've seen, um, first of all, this idea of training for the grace for the present age. Secondly, this idea of waiting with hope for the future age. And now he closes with this, this challenge, this exhortation to Titus to speak with authority about both ages. <clears throat> he says these things in verse 15, declare these things. What's he saying there? What's, what are these things he's talking about? Oh, it's everything that precedes in chapter two specifically, but possibly even in the entire letter. Maybe he's going back to saying, declare the, the instruction on the qualifications for, for elders. And, and I want to, you to declare the, the threat of the false teachers that he talked about in chapter one. But specifically here, and most immediately, he's been telling them how sound doctrine pro promotes sound living. And this doctrine or this sound living that results from sound teaching is of the gospel that transforms by grace. That is what he wants him to declare continually. Teach these things over and over again. And that's going to involve exhorting Christians and rebuking false teachers who would distract or threaten the gospel, the true gospel. And now he has the, Paul's apostolic support backing the message he's declaring. And so Titus, he closes with this, uh, let no one disregard you. Now, some have argued that Titus was probably older than Timothy, although in uh, likelihood both of them were younger than Paul, but he, he reinforces the idea to Timothy multiple times and not to let people disregard him for his youth. And that might be the implication here with Titus, but either way, whether it was because 
Titus was young or because Cretans were typically skeptical. Whatever it was, he was not to let his, himself be disregarded. He should proclaim this message boldly. What, and as we look and consider today what characterizes most public discourse, I, I think it's, it's a prize or it's rewarded if you're able to be elusive, non-committal, wishy-washy about what it is you believe. Keep people in the dark about that. Let it be a private matter. The unsettling goal of public speaking is to offend the fewest number of people. The one who wins is the one who causes the least offense. And maybe if you're like me, you, you kind of scoff at the universities that create these safe places, these little safe places for students who are threatened in, to have their worldview changed by the free speech area or by a militant professor. And so if you want to get away, escape that, you can, you can enter into these safe places and you can just be encouraged. You can just be built up, exhorted to, to, not, to not let it get to you, to just keep being who you want to be. The sad thing is we scoff at the universities, but we, we don't realize that the church has become one giant safe place where people can come to have their worldviews tickled, where they aren't challenged to live a different life. They're not challenged to think differently. Now, I'm not saying that everything demands to be thundered. But it's time that we quit whispering the truth of the gospel in a culture that desperately needs to hear it. begin speaking boldly about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not incompatible with speaking the truth in love. It's the most loving thing we can do. And we must not be ashamed of the gospel, as he says to the Romans. And so the message we boldly proclaim is this, that the same grace that saves in, saved us in the past also trains us how to live in the present with hope for the future. And that's how I would summarize this passage. The same grace that saved us in the past also trains us how to live in the present with hope for the, for the future. So your salvation has a past, present, and future component to it. To it. In other words, we're not to be ashamed of speaking about the gospel of Christ. And although Paul was writing to Titus here, this is a message that would apply to the whole of Christ's church, right? who are being bombarded by false teaching, who were thinking it was perfectly acceptable and okay to have and hold all these contradictory beliefs. And so in summary, we need to see that we are to be trained by grace for the present age, 
We're to be waiting with hope for the future age, and we're to be speaking with authority about both ages. Remember, we're born under conditions that are hopeless, and we cannot save ourselves, nor can we train ourselves. But Jesus Christ appeared, and he will appear again. And it is only those who turn to Christ as both their God and Savior who will find a blessed hope at the end. And so are you being trained by the grace of Christ to wait for the glory of Christ? Because when you're doing both of those well, the result is that you will begin speaking of the gospel of Christ with passion and authority. Let's pray.